0: Hi, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, episode 151, Fallout from the Gamergate episode. Alright, maybe Fallout's too dramatic, but I did receive a little bump in the numbers following last week's episode, and I received some responses too, so I thought I'd go over those. First up, I'll read a few YouTube comments, and I'd like to thank everyone for being so civil, even when disagreeing with me. And we all know how brutal the YouTube comment section can be. For some reason, I've still been relatively lucky in uh, that department. And I have to be honest, the YouTube version of the episode didn't get that many hits. I I think it's only something like 117 hits. And uh, it's kind of unusual. I I don't really get many thumbs down, but I did get a... three thumbs down so i'm not sure if it's from men's rights activists who thought maybe i went too easy on uh, sarkeesian and her ilk or if it's from feminists who didn't like the way i spoke about rebecca watson and elevator gate or maybe it's just people who didn't find the video entertaining i don't know Or maybe it's karma for making fun of all the downvotes that Rebecca Watson's video got. But I don't believe in karma. Skeptic, agnostic, atheist after all. I kind of believe in it in a kind of sociological cause and effect kind of way. Like if you go around acting crappy to people and burning your bridges, most likely you're going to receive similar treatment in return. But anyway, it goes to show how I'm still kind of in the minor leagues here. Even though I was joking about how Rebecca Watson had like 12 or 13,000 downvotes on that initial video where um, she recounts her harrowing elevator experience. (laughs) Still, even if they're downvotes, that's still, uh, I mean, that dwarfs my hits. I mean, it makes makes my measly 117 or whatever seem uh, insignificant. It's funny, though, I think my YouTube channel as a whole, though, has, like, 160,000 views or something like that. Uh, Sadly, uh, I believe in being honest, I think most of the hits have probably come from uh, people looking at little snippets of Bill Maher videos I've put up there or clips of famous atheists, uh, things like that. But that reminds me, I do have plans that I'm trying to put in motion to kind of ramp up my... um, YouTube presence. I might actually put my mug up on uh, YouTube soon. Uh, It seems like for some reason people who actually put their faces on screen uh, tend to draw more viewers. There are exceptions, like, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but there's a a station. Actually, I think he has like four different channels, but there's a guy who calls himself Atheism is Unstoppable, or at least that's his YouTube uh, handle or his channel name. And his avatar, for lack of a better word, is like a a photoshopped kangaroo. It's actually pretty funny. Uh, If you go to check out his videos, um, just be forewarned uh, that he can be kind of really opinionated, or in your face, maybe, um, kind of in keeping with people like uh, The Amazing Atheist, or uh, Cult of Dusty, uh, that type of thing. And I actually like watching those kind of videos, they don't bother me. But I know everyone's different, so I thought I'd give you a little caveat there. But anyway, enough of that. On to the comments. It looks like the first one is from someone named Ziffelmeyer. And keep in mind, this is in response to the Gamergate slash Atheist Infighting episode, the YouTube version. And just to give you some context, as the name suggests, in that episode I talked about both Gamergate and Atheist Infighting, but the common thread is what seems to be this kind of gender schism that's at the heart of Gamergate and also seems to be at the heart of some of the Atheist Infighting, too. And the episode led me into some kind of gossipy subject matter that I wouldn't usually cover, including allegations of sexual assault against high-profile members of the skeptic or free thought community. But anyway, uh, so my gut's telling me that the commenter might be female. I'm not sure why. Maybe something about the syntax or the, uh, the wording or whatever. But I'll call her a she, and if you're listening, feel free to correct me. Slap me on the proverbial snout. But, um, they say, I almost feel guilty admitting I was interested in all this celebrity gossip. I normally don't like this type of thing, but maybe because I've listened to so many of these people's lectures, like you referenced at the end, the pedestal thing. Oops, ladies and gentlemen, Dawkins almost fell off, teetering on one leg now. Hang in there, Richard. Anyway, I like how level-headed you seem to be in your accounts of what happened, and I agree with your assessments. The only part I saw a little differently than you is the elevator thing. I could see why you'd say Rebecca Watson came off sounding a little full of herself. I agree, but when I first saw the video, I certainly wasn't outraged by it. At the most, I'm thinking, oh, Rebecca, shush. Uh, Maybe it was the shush that made me guess that the youtuber in question might be a female. I don't think I've ever said shush, but anyway. And she continues, so you were uncomfortable for five seconds. Was it really important enough to mention in a video? And I think that's a good point. And then once again, she continues, but the response by a lot of guys was outrage. Men were furious over this. Death threats, Just because she said that, really? I support most feminists. I thought her comments were very thoughtful and good-natured. She obviously disagreed with me a little on the whole elevator gate thing. But thank you for being civil and rational, even when we disagreed, and not try to verbally rip my throat out. And my response was... Ha ha. Yes, I actually typed out. Ha ha. Thank you for your kind response. I really appreciate it. Smiley face emoticon. I know what you mean about feeling guilty indulging in such hearsay and gossip. I felt a similar way making it, but decided the topic still had enough merit to justify the episode. And I should stop to say, uh, well, I don't know if she wants me saying this on the air, but I don't think you guys will know who she is anyway, uh, given the fact that she uses an alias. But a good friend of the show who goes by the um, moniker or alias Heresy, uh, I was talking to her about this because I wanted to get a female perspective and um, make sure that I wasn't disrespectful or that I didn't go too far. I was a little self-conscious because I was kind of wading into new territory. I usually don't discuss gender issues on the show or kind of uh, give my take on these kind of gossipy he-said-she-said stories. And she told me in a very constructive and good-natured way that the only part of the episode that she kind of saw things differently uh, than me or or took issue with what I said was also, uh, like this YouTuber was with, how I handled the elevator gate story and I think she even pretty much agreed with me on my kind of logical breakdown or assessment of Elevator Gate. She just thought that I might have stepped over the line a little when I, um, made a somewhat disparaging remark about, or at least insinuated, uh, something, um, unpleasant about, uh, Rebecca Watson's, uh, appearance. It's one of those things I knew while I was saying it, I shouldn't have said it, but, um, I found her kind of so obnoxious that I kind of gave into the uh, devil on my shoulder, so to speak. I know it doesn't justify it, but she's probably hurt a lot worse. All I did was I I said something like, um, she should be lucky anyone's asking her out. And it was a kind of crappy thing to say, and uh, I didn't have to go there, but I did. But anyway, I just want to uh, say to both Heresy and uh, Ziffelmeyer that I appreciate uh, your honesty and your civility, and uh, I agree with uh, both you guys, all right? And uh, next up, we have Kevin Solway, and he puts in quotes, misogynistic threats, Uh, and I think that's because he didn't um, agree with uh, how I described Anna Sarkeesian's online uh, experiences and her claims that she's had to deal with, um, uh, well, misogynistic threats, um, according to her, even death threats or whatever. But anyway, he, he continues, Don't buy into her bullshit. uh oh, sure warned you guys. Uh, there's no evidence that any threats made to Sarkeesian are misogynistic, misogynistic in quotes. Just because a person might hate Sarkeesian, it doesn't mean that they hate all women. Sarkeesian wants you to believe that she represents all women. She doesn't. So even though they strongly disagreed with me, once again, I want to thank them for being so kind of civil and uh, mature about it. And I replied, hey, thanks for the response. I think you make a valid point. That often gets overlooked when dealing with the Gamergate issue. It's possible to simply dislike or disagree with someone without gender being a factor. Uh, you know, I think that's true. I mean, you can find someone annoying or obnoxious, and it doesn't have to do with their gender or that they're a woman or whatever, Um it's just that maybe you think the person's being less than honest. Uh, maybe there's just something about them that rubs you the wrong way um, or that irks you. And I know for a fact, just by reading YouTube comments and watching videos from female commentators, that not all girls support Anita Sarkeesian. And there's, there's a lot of you know, girls or women um, who think she's off base when it comes to her views on video games. But as far as the death threats go, uh, I think this is where things get kind of tricky. How many threats are these people wrapped up in the Gamergate controversy actually receiving? How many of those actual threats are misogynistic? And uh, how many of them are just... Run of the mill, mean spirited trolling, or whatever. I I don't know. I have no idea. I imagine to some degree it's in the eye of the beholder. But I'm sure there's probably at least some in the mix that are so extreme and ugly and over the top and use such kind of violent language, especially if they involve rape threats or. Involve calling someone the C word or something like that, that there's little doubt that they qualify as misogynistic. And just on a side note, I'm obviously not a prude, but with a couple of exceptions every now and then, I try to rein my language in for listeners who may have kind of more sensitive ears. I have sworn on the show here and there, but I haven't dropped a C-bomb yet and I don't ever plan to unless I'm doing like a uh, train spotting impression or something like that. And that reminds me of how I did get in trouble at a party once for doing like a Scottish impression and uh, using the C-word the way that like, People in the UK use it as um, a slang word that you could call a guy, and it could either be an insult or almost like an irreverent term of endearment. Like, come here, you bloody. I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it. <laughs> but it's funny. I did get in trouble at a party. I was doing like a, uh, like a Scotsman impersonation, and I'm sure it was absolutely horrible, uh, but I was drunk, and I probably thought it was great. But I didn't address any female person that way, and I wasn't even using it in the way that we Americans normally do. But there was at least one girl at the party who overheard me and had kind of sensitive ears. And it was actually at a party where a good female friend of mine was trying to impress her future in-laws. Don't invite me to a party if you want to impress your future in-laws. There's a chance I might end up hanging from a balcony or uh, belting outdoors songs before the night is through. Yeah, this is weird though. I, I have seen high profile YouTube personalities uh, who are critiquing, uh, shall we say, prominent feminists, uh, you know, kind of third wave uh, feminists or whatever. Uh, it could be Anita Sarkeesian or it could be Rebecca Watson or whatever. And they will just throw the C word right out there, and uh, and and it usually is the uh, you know the North American ones or whatever. There's that difference in how the words used in uh, the UK as opposed to the US, and it can be a little jarring to uh, American ears. And I'm sure uh, my listeners in the UK are already aware, but. In the States, if you call someone, if you call a woman the C word, it's considered like the most vile, incendiary thing that you can say. And uh, it's strange in a sense, I'm conditioned that way too. Like I wouldn't call a a woman that. But it it reminds me of this kind of philosophical insight that I've had since a young age about uh, swearing that I noticed from an early age that for every bad word that you weren't supposed to say, there was usually a synonym that meant the same exact thing that you were allowed to say. And oftentimes the synonyms themselves aren't the most pleasant of words, but they're not considered vulgar or um, inappropriate unless it's in a certain situation. And here I'll just... How ironic, given I was just talking about my policy about swearing. I'll swear. So shit is considered crude and vulgar. You're not supposed to say it. Sometimes it's used as a curse. You know, you say it in anger. But often it's used to refer to excrement. Like if you find dog (laughs) blank on your front lawn. Um, And it's considered vulgar to say it. But if you say excrement or feces... And I hope you're not eating right now. Like I said, sometimes even the synonyms aren't uh, necessarily pleasant. You know, but if you say one of those more kind of dignified, kind of Latin-sounding <laughs> synonyms, suddenly it's all right. Or on the news, they could say two people were discovered having sex in a church, or, you know, or fornicating. Fornicating sounds like uh, kind of puritanical, though. I've been watching that TV series Salem, it sounds like something they'd say on there. Um, so you could say two people were having sex or something like that, but you couldn't say two people were, I- I'll spare you this one. Imagine a newscaster saying this afternoon, two individuals were spotted effing inside a local church, but imagine he's actually saying it, Yeah. You know? <laughs> or you could say buttocks, but you're not supposed to say ass, that's vulgar, you know? Or you could say a man came down with cancer of the testicles or testicular cancer, but you couldn't say some guy got cancer in his balls. You know, it's, it's so weird because there really are words that are completely synonymous, but one word's considered kind of appropriate or almost um, clinical or something like that, but another word that means the same exact thing is considered uh, vulgar. Like, you could call someone a jerk, which isn't nice, uh, but it's not nearly as bad as if you called the person an a-hole, you know what I mean? Uh, And maybe it's because you're comparing someone to a part of the body that people consider kind of innately embarrassing and unclean. And maybe there's a similar thing with the C word. Although I think people shouldn't be ashamed of their bodies. And I'm not saying I think a woman's reproductive organs are unclean or innately embarrassing. Um, I'm just saying that some of those... uh, ideas or concepts are possibly being conveyed when using uh, certain words in a pejorative sense and maybe that's why in a way people think the c-word is misogynistic because you're implying that there's something filthy or innately shameful about female reproductive organs or whatever um or genitalia rather but i've always found that interesting how there is that kind of uh kind of weird hypocrisy or whatever about how certain words are allowed and some aren't, even if they uh, are synonymous. And this is one bizarre theory of my own. I don't know if anyone's ever researched it. It seems like the words that are acceptable usually have an almost kind of Latin or clinical ring to them. And the words that are considered crude or vulgar have almost a more guttural or barbarous almost a germanic tone to them uh it'd be interesting to look up the etymologies of some of these synonyms or whatever uh but i didn't think i'd be talking about this today i'm once again going off into some weird territory and i hope i didn't offend anyone
1: but anyway
0: where was i it's 20 minutes in and i got sidetracked while reading that uh second comment from the youtube version of the GamerGate episode Oh, but I was talking about um, high-profile feminists caught up in the Gamergate controversy, and what percentage of the kind of hate mail or trolling uh, that they're on the receiving end of actually qualifies as um, misogynistic threats or, or whatnot. And then what makes the whole mess even more confusing is that there's this phenomenon that I had never even heard of until I started researching all this. And it's basically referred to as a sock puppet, uh, which is kind of funny. And by sock puppet, I'm not talking about an actual sock with like googly eyes that you put on your hand. Uh, It's slang or internet lingo for when someone creates a dummy account and pretends they're someone else. So some people have accused... Women involved in the Gamergate scandal, um, people like Sarkeesian and Brianna uh, Wu and uh, Zoe Quinn, people like that, have accused some of these people of resorting to using sock puppets where they'll create an extra, I don't know what it is, it could be an extra Twitter account or. Or an extra account at some kind of a blog or something like that. And then as the theory goes, they'll then send themselves uh, kind of hateful, misogynistic uh, threats or messages. So are people using sock puppets? Uh, I don't know. Um, how much of the threats are coming from <laughs> dummy sock puppet accounts? How many are actual valid uh, threats? I have no idea. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there far more well-versed than I when it comes to Gamergate and when it comes to sifting through the evidence and trying to figure out who's using sock puppets and who's not, who's actually being threatened and who's blowing things out of proportion. Um I know a th- I know a few of the women, I think like Brianna Woo and uh, maybe Sarkeesian and Zoe Quinn. I could be wrong, but I think those three, I know at least some of those uh, people I just named, supposedly had to uh, leave their homes. According to them, that's what they say because they were receiving uh, serious threats. But then there's these uh, all these people I never even knew existed that while well, researching all this, I discovered on YouTube there's some really popular YouTube uh, personalities out there. There's a guy named, I think it's Mikaru or Mykeru, M-Y-K-E-R-U. There's a guy who calls himself Tildare. Um, and I think it's, I, I don't know what it's an abbreviation for, if it's some kind of weird computer syntax thing, but I think it's, it's also, also the pun is, because his, his name is T-L semicolon D-R. Um... But his his kind of mascot or avatar is a bluish green deer, a teal deer. <laughs> so there's there's that guy, and then there's um, oh there's another guy who's huge on YouTube called Thunderfoot, and then there's another guy named uh, Noel Plum ninety nine. But these are really popular YouTubers who have thousands upon thousands of uh, subscribers and uh, views. And they all critique things like feminism in the Gamergate controversy and feminism in the free thought community, etc. And most of the guys are pretty critical of uh, feminism or what they call third-wave feminism or whatever. And fairness to the, to the guys, I think most of them claim to be egalitarian. They claim that, therefore, the equal rights of everyone and even though feminism, by definition, should be, you know, fighting for the equal rights of women, that they think that modern, you know, like radical feminism, the type of feminism we sometimes see with uh, GamerGate and the free thought community, it actually has kind of gone off the rails and seeks for more than just parody or whatever. And I think there might be some truth to that, Uh, like I said in last week's episode, it's good to have your causes, whether it's women's rights or, um, you know, African-American rights or even, you know, men's rights, as long as, while you're fighting, you don't lose sight of our common humanity and start viewing members of other groups as the other. Uh, And I think sometimes this can happen with quote-unquote radical feminism, where people start seeing a misogynist behind every tree, or you see people drinking out of cups that say male tears, or you have people referring to um, straight men as, uh, like, cisgender scum or things like that you know what I mean and and there are also a lot of grounded feminists who think that you know who agree with that women who agree with that that they some of these people do go too far but anyway while I got into all this I, I think I was watching a video by Tildare or Dare. and he was talking about these stories about these female personalities caught up in the Gamergate controversy having to leave their homes. And he says that they didn't have to leave their homes. They chose to leave their homes. And I don't know what the truth is. You know, Sometimes some of these guys can be kind of uh, harsh. I, I don't know what the truth is about that. I... I I don't know if they really re- received threats that were so intense and and vile and uh and ominous that they really did feel like they had no choice but to flee their homes for their own safety or were things being blown out of proportion or something like that i have no idea but i find out of, out of all those guys i think that Plum 99 is probably the most grounded out of all that crew in my opinion at least when it comes to covering uh feminism and in, in GamerGate and um the free thought community and I think he's probably the most fair of those guys. There's sometimes when, uh, although I enjoy at times the videos of people like Tildare and Thunderfoot and, uh, Mikaru or Mikaru, um, there are times when they seem to be, as as rational as they are, the times when they they come off to me as being a little bitter or or almost borderline uh, extreme themselves. And I hate saying that because I think those guys in general, for the most part, are pretty uh, rational and make good arguments. But uh, I heard a couple of those guys, I know Tildare was one of them, who got into subjects that I might not even broach just out of uh, trying to be respectful. Like, remember that old kind of ugly idea that you know people would say, if a woman got sexually assaulted and she was dressed a certain way, she was asking for it or something like that, you know. And, of course, decent people readily admit that it doesn't matter what you are wearing or if you are wearing nothing at all. No one has the right to sexually assault someone else or to rape someone else. Um, but I think, like, Teal Dare and some of those other guys will actually will kind of speculate about whether or not a woman does have some personal responsibility to dress a certain way or something like that if she wants to avoid getting uh, sexually assaulted. And, And they'll quickly say, I'm not justifying the sexual assault or the rape, and the person should be punished to the fullest extent of the law, but doesn't the person have some kind of personal responsibility to also dress a certain way knowing that there could be consequences and that's like an area I wouldn't even dare to get into not because I'm afraid of experiencing some kind of feminist backlash but because I think I have too much respect for victims and that's kind of a dangerous area to get into because even though on some very cold logical level maybe you could say, okay, imagine we could run this kind of simulated experiment where we have a dark alley, it's uh, two in the morning or something, and we have two of these, you know, almost imagine like a computer screen that's split the same dark alley on both sides of the screen. And then you send, you know, a little simulated woman down each uh, dark alleyway One's wearing like a Gore-Tex coat and uh, an ankle-length dress, <laughs> you know, kind of frumpy or something. And the other one's wearing like a, a mini skirt and heels or something. Is there a chance that the one in the mini skirt and the heels is going to attract more visual attention from the opposite sex, including would-be rapists? Then, on some level, just factually, you say, yeah. Um, they, they probably stand out more, and uh, they're dressed in a way that's more uh, sexually arousing to the eye of the opposite sex or whatever. But obviously, I, I mean, at the end of the day, and this is what even the, these other guys admit, that no matter what, you know, there's no excuse to rape or sexually assault someone. And, and that's where I think it should be left, that it's the fault of the... Rapist, Let, let's make a third simulated alley, and then this one, someone goes down it, you know, buck naked. That still doesn't give someone a right to sexually assault or, or rape someone. And, and so I, I just think it's dangerous, kind of irresponsible, when you start to get into these arguments about what personal responsibility does the woman have to dress a certain way. And, and like I said, and then also I should say, you know, what's provocative is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, is jeans and a tight sweater provocative? Uh, <laughs> is, uh, you know, a, a woman dressed like she just came from the office doing a white collar job. Uh, could that be provocative? To some guy who finds, uh, you know, the whole business lady get up attractive. Um, I mean, where does it end? As uh, should every woman dress like uh, they just came from an Amish village or something? Um, I guess I'm trying to draw a comparison. It'd be like, if I walk down the street, you know, if, if I walk down a city street at night dressed in just my usual normal clothes, um, but I have to pass some kind of shady characters, uh, maybe I'll stand a better chance of making it by them if I am just dressed like a normal guy, than if I was dressed like Elton John or you know wearing a, uh, wearing like a furry costume or something <laughs> you know like anything that draws attention could cause a greater chance of garnering negative attention, uh, you know, or, or um, finding yourself in a situation where you, where you could be victimized. But still, at the end of the day, it's the person who perpetrated the crime that's at fault, not the victim. No matter what you were wearing yeah so even though i think there might be a a grain of practical truth in that type of thing it's not an area that i would really broach just you know out of respect to victims and that i think we should keep the focus on the predators and the perpetrators and what they're doing wrong instead of even toying with language that could be interpreted as placing the onus on the victim. And this kind of leads me back to what I said, you know, at the beginning of last week's episode, that there were two things that I had to talk about that really didn't interest me much, and how one of them was Gamergate, and it's kind of ironic, I was just talking about Gamergate again for, I don't know, five or ten minutes, and the other was the ongoing you know, war between, um, radical feminists and the men's rights, uh, movement. And ironically, I just talked about that again too, but I guess my point is, you know, that stuff doesn't really interest me. I'm not saying I'm some saint who doesn't see gender, you know, I'm a straight adult male. So, you know, obviously, um, if I see an attractive female, I understand that they're female, and I'm, you know, gonna look at them a little differently than I would uh, another guy or something like that. But I still try to treat them with the same respect and dignity that I would treat anyone else. And other than the fact that I might be physically attracted, you know, to someone uh, of the opposite sex, other than that, I try not to put pigeonhole people and put people into all these different compartments uh, you know and label people woman feminists uh man cisgender uh, all this other crap i just try to see people as people you know when i first started this podcast i wanted to talk about very kind of weighty and lofty topics that had to do with the shared existential plight of all of us you know as far as uh validity or invalidity of man-made religions go, whether or not there's an afterlife, whether or not there's a God, and because I was very interested in watching atheist debates and lectures and stuff like that, and I was so passionate about those things that I wanted some sort of platform for adding my two cents to the conversation. That's why I decided to make this podcast, and then all of a sudden it's like... You know, I've discovered recently uh, all all these weird schisms in the atheist community, all this stupid drama and everything else, and all of a sudden I'm talking about feminists versus uh, men's rights activists and uh, who slept with who and who's been um, accused of uh, what sexual impropriety or, or whatever. And uh, I'm not saying anyone twisted my arm and made me do last week's episode, but I guess I'm just kind of voicing my personal disappointment with... uh... It's weird. On the one hand, I was going to say the atheist community when I'm often talking about how I don't even consider myself as part of a community. You know, I'm a non-believer because that's where the evidence or lack thereof led me, uh, not because I wanted to be a, a partisan group. But I think maybe I'm a hypocrite in that way. I'll still sometimes refer to the atheist community, but at the, the same time, um, I don't really like to think of myself as being, uh, committed to, uh, any group organization or uh, community. But that brings me to, uh, maybe before I put the nail in the coffin on this whole gamer uh and uh atheist infighting thing how uh, another thing I discovered recently that um i i didn't I wasn't even aware existed was is something called atheism plus and it's tied into this um online site called uh, free thought blogs and at free thought blogs you can actually find a lot of kind of heavy hitters uh contributing people like Richard Carrier, uh, an academic who's well-known for his uh, work on mythicism or his study of mythicism. And mythicism is just the school of thought that um, there there may not have actually been a historical Jesus, and that Jesus is just another dying and rising God, kind of in the style of the ancient mystery religions. And... um, other pagan deities who were dying and rising gods and uh, things like that. Um, And also you can find other, well, I don't know if John Loftus is still on there. John Loftus is another big name in the uh, atheist community. He's, there I am with community again, he's taken part in a lot of debates, given lectures, written books and stuff, started off as a believing Christian and was actually a student of William Lane Craig. And there was some kind of nasty back-and-forth stuff going on with uh, Richard Carrier and John Loftus and uh, kind of different members of Free Thought Blogs kind of pigpiling on uh, Loftus. And... Uh, Carrier also kind of talked a lot of trash about Bart Ehrman or Ehrman. In fairness, I've heard him say positive or laudatory things about some of Ehrman's work too. But yeah, there's something associated with Free Thought Blogs known as Atheism Plus, and it's basically it. I maybe it's an organization. I guess I guess it would qualify as an organization, but it's kind of this kind of progressive social justice kind of strain of atheism and the plus stands for the idea that it should be atheism plus different progressive causes like atheism plus feminism or um atheism plus whatever and um i don't know if it's fair to say he invented it but PZ Myers, who I talked about in last week's episode is very heavily involved in atheism plus. And, uh, I don't know if it's his brainchild or not. I think it might be, but, uh, I don't want to say with, you know, 100% certainty, I don't have the facts in front of me. Um, and PZ Myers catches a lot of flack from people in the atheist community for, um, being kind of too married to this kind of radical feminist element that has arisen in uh, certain parts of the online atheist community, like free thought blogs. And as I mentioned in last week's episode, um, he had posted anonymous uh, allegations against Michael Shermer and uh, things like that. So I don't think that P.Z. Myers has any shortage of uh, enemies. And it's funny, those kind of. Um, I don't know if I'd call them men's rights activists, but those online atheist personalities, those big YouTube personalities who are critical of the feminist element in uh, the Gamergate controversy and in the free thought community, uh, at least a couple of them used to be members of free thought blogs. I think, uh, I think Thunderfoot got booted off of free thought blogs, possibly by Myers, uh, possibly. And I think Noel Plum... And possibly Mikearoo or Mikaroo. These are people that I think used to be on Free Thought Blogs. And like I said, I think Noel Plum99 is probably the most grounded and fair minded of all those cats. And uh, I think if you're interested in the whole kind of soap opera that is Free Thought Blogs, you should probably check out some of his uh, online videos. But I'll continue with the YouTube comments. Then another person named Matthew G. Phillips says, uh, check out Mike Carew's excellent videos on the Shermer incident. And I replied, thanks for the heads up. I'm going to check it out now. The whole story is so surreal. I've been a Shermer fan for a long time. Then Matthew G. Phillips says again, Anita views Bayonetta as a sexist game. And then he provides a link. You're assuming she's being rational about what she targets, but she's not. And, um, And he's referencing Bayonetta there, and uh, I mentioned Bayonetta in last week's episode when I was talking about powerful female heroines in uh, video games. And actually, uh, this is kind of an, an embarrassing admission, but the Bayonetta series, well I say series but there's only two games, is actually one of my favorite game series, and that's probably because One of my other favorite series is Devil May Cry. Still haven't played the reboot that they did. But Devil May Cry, uh, I don't know, it probably goes back like a decade now or something. But it's a a really cool kind of action. Um, I guess maybe kind of like a 3D platformer, in a way, type of game. Um, But I love Devil May Cry, and Bayonetta is basically... The, the female equivalent of that. The game mechanics are very similar. In Devil May Cry, you play as Dante, uh, kind of a, a good guy, maybe an anti hero who's um, half demon and he's a demon hunter, so you're always fighting the forces of hell. And then in Bayonetta, you play as a witch and you're actually fighting the forces of heaven. Uh, <laughs> But it's uh, the games are very similar, a very similar feel, similar mechanics, uh, etc. Yeah, so I I watched this video he was talking about, and Anita Sarkeesian does this whole review video where she just pans Bayonetta for being this sexist kind of um, schoolboy sexual fantasy game or something like that. And uh, I don't think... The Bayonetta games are sexist. They're sexual. Uh, I don't know if it's a case where something got kind of lost in translation. Like a lot of video games, Bayonetta is uh, the developers are Japanese, I believe. And now I can't remember if Bayonetta is Capcom or what it is. I, I forget. I know Devil May Cry is Capcom, and some of the same people are involved in the two series, I believe. But Bayonetta, as much as I love the games, they're very weird in the sense that Bayonetta is this uh, very strong, independent female character And so she's not depicted by any stretch as a damsel in distress or anything like that. But at the same time, she is a kind of hyper-sexual character. Uh, Her clothing, it's so hard to explain. It sounds even weirder than it does to me when I try to explain it to someone else, I'm sure. But her hair, her clothing is actually her hair. So when she fights in boss battles, um, she's just about naked and her hair turn, you know, she does this weird magic stuff with her hair. But that doesn't mean that it's anti-feminist or that's misogynistic. She's a powerful female character. She's just uh, a very kind of sensual or sexual character at the same time. Um, You know, a character who kind of flaunts the sexual aspect of her nature, and that kind of goes into this kind of weird hypocrisy that I think some people have pointed out that we see with, like, the Anita Sarkeesian's of the world. On the one hand, they claim to be pro-woman, but they sometimes almost have this prudish, almost, like, Catholic approach to uh, sensuality and sexuality. Like, even if a female character is, is strong and independent, if she's showing cleavage or skin, uh, this is kind of a no-no. You know, and then this is anti-feminist uh, or whatever. Hmm. Uh, so I, and I think that's a kind of interesting kind of contradiction, possibly even hypocrisy that we see sometimes in those circles. But then uh, Matthew uh, G. Phillips posts one more time and he says... Aaron, or Arone, he's uh, referencing Aaron Joni, Zoe Quinn's ex-boyfriend. And uh, Zoe Quinn is kind of the girl who started it all, in in a sense. Uh, She's at the heart of the Gamergate controversy. And just once again, in case you missed last week's episode, and this is the really kind of soap opera type stuff, she released a game called Depression Quest, and uh, a lot of people thought it received undue attention. And I think that's pretty safe to say, because the more I've looked into the game, it, it can barely be called a video game. Uh, it, it's almost like this weird kind of text-based Flash type of game. And supposedly had even received negative responses from people who are actually suffering from depression and were part of like a trial You know, like a a game test or something like that, because the game was supposed to be this way of helping people, uh, you know, navigate through their depression or to help people understand what it's like to suffer with depression. And supposedly people who tested the game who were actually people who have wrestled with depression didn't even uh, like the game. But anyway, so um, her boyfriend, who I believe is a gaming insider, uh, after they had this kind of contentious breakup... Uh, he had posted a bunch of stuff online about her. And um, then, you know, basically all hell broke loose, and uh, <laughs> that's Gamergate. And then we ended up with that divide, the two sides of the Gamergate controversy. The people who are supposed to be pursuing ethical reforms in uh, gaming journalism. And then on the other side, you have people who claim that they're receiving misogynistic threats from uh, pro gamer gators. But anyway, Matthew G. Phillips says, Iran posted the first Zoe stuff on Penny Arcade forums and Something Awful, which were forums friendly to Zoe Quinn. And I replied, Hey, Matthew, thanks for the response and the clarification. Smiley face emoticon. Um. And I think what he's referring to is that I had mentioned in last week's episode that he had released this over 9,000-word essay, you know, containing bits of chat logs and personal emails and stuff, supposedly, um, you know, that painted Zoe Quinn in a poor light. And uh, and this was after their breakup, and he had posted this, like, 9,000-word thing on some, uh, blogs or forums or sites that were already critical of her. And supposedly, uh, according to that side of the controversy that helped, uh, spark what was seen as this kind of misogynistic reaction to, uh, Zoe Quinn. And I, I think we're actually both right. I think those very well could have been the first places where he released, um, that essay, for lack of a better word. But he did also publish it on sites that were already critical of Quinn as well. But I think that was it for the YouTube comments. And I didn't want to look like a quitter by only releasing, (laughs) you know, the inaugural episode of the News bite segment and then never (laughs) releasing another uh, episode. So I'm trying to keep that going and last week, uh, around the middle of last week, I did release the second episode of the uh, News Byte uh, segment. And it was about a news story that broke in, in around the middle of the week about three million-year-old tools that were recently discovered in uh, Kenya. And I posted a YouTube version as, as well as um, an audio-only version uh, as an episode of the podcast. But I did get a couple of comments on that as well. One person just said, "Wow!" So as long as they're not being sarcastic, I'll take that as a high praise. And then someone, then someone else said, "Speaking of nuts, porn at fifty-six second mark." And, and what they're talking, what they're talking about is, is uh, well these so-called tools that were found three million year old tools, the oldest tools on record now. Some of them were kind of sharp-edged tools. Some were these things that almost looked like rocks with flat bottoms that were probably meant for crushing things the way that modern primates like the great apes and even smaller monkeys, like I think it was capuchin monkeys, were recently discovered to use rocks as tools for uh, crushing nuts. But I realized this after the fact, uh, probably near the end of the editing process, that I included a picture. I think it's a little capuchin or capuchin monkey whatever they are it's this monkey holding this rock above its head and i did i did like a ken burns transition where i start from the rock and pan down to like the nuts that the monkey is going to crush with the rock and as i'm panning down they're dangling between this um scrawny monkey's legs are it's little monkey penis <laughs> and so that's what's at the 56 second mark but anyway yes yeah, so he says speaking of nuts porn at 56 second mark i decided to be a good sport about it i gave him a, a thumbs up and i replied ha!" and yes i typed haha once again the little monkey penis i noticed that after i inserted the pick. <clears throat> Are you guys uncomfortable that I just used the word penis twice now, three? I promise that's the end of it, uh, for this episode at least. And then good friend of the show, Crocoduck. Uh, oh, actually, now he's Saint Crocoduck. I don't think he was always Saint Crocoduck. Was he? Um, Saint Crocoduck at HumorBot 5.0. Um, but he's a really good guy, and uh, we have a lot of great conversations via Twitter. And in response to uh the intro and outro music from last week's episode which was music from my old you know metal i feel bad calling it metal because I, I like to think that uh we're a little more unique and that we don't deserve to just be classified generically as metal but it, it's like a heavy dark metal type of uh, music but he says uh holy crap phil your intro slash exit music made me want to watch Metalocalypse and drink shots. Tomorrow's hangover is your fault. And then I replied, Thank you, my friend. Good to know my old tunes can still awaken the beast and man. And then uh, another friend of the show, and also someone that I would probably, even though we've never met in person, I would at this point consider a, a personal friend, is the Mad Humanist. I, I don't know if I should refer to him as the Mad Humanist or is his show, Just the Mad Humanist. But the Mad Humanist podcast, if you haven't listened yet, check that out. But we had this funny kind of communication breakdown. Where I was a little self-conscious about doing last week's episode because it dealt with kind of vague sexual allegations against high-profile people. It dealt with gender issues and it dealt with hearsay. And I was kind of self-conscious. I was kind of treading into new waters uh, with that episode. And I didn't know how it would be received by everyone. And the Mad Humanist has always been a, a gentleman, has always been a good, mild-mannered guy. We've always gotten along. And then I went on the Twitter, and I, it, we always kind of support each other's shows. You know, here we are together, side by side, slogging along through the uh, the ongoing battle that is the, uh, the quest for podcast popularity. And so, you know, I'll mention him on the show, and... He'll retweet my episodes and things like that, uh, or my episode links. And so the day after that episode aired, I go on the Twitter and I see this message from the Mad Humanist. It's almost like my blood runs cold and my heart stops for a second. I'm like, oh no, is the Mad Humanist mad at me? But he tweeted, so now you know how to make your podcast famous. Drop the objectivity and fairness. And, and I have trouble putting into words how crestfallen I was. And I had seen that uh, tweet right before I went to work for the day. And so the first half of the day, I'm like, I mean, I, I probably didn't look kind of uh, sulky or distressed on the outside. But inside, I'm like thinking, wow, I must have went over the line at some point in that podcast. There must have been something that he really took offense to in there. I'm thinking maybe he thought I was slandering P.Z. Myers, or maybe he thought I was slandering Michael Shermer by, uh, even though I was kind of giving Shermer the benefit of the doubt and talking about how much I liked him, maybe he thought I was doing more harm than good by repeating these kind of, uh, allegations against Shermer. I didn't know what it was, and so I, I replied, uh, And these are personal messages, so hopefully the the mad humanist doesn't actually take offense uh, if I read some of these. But I... I PMed him and I said, Hey, I take it judging by your tweet that you didn't approve of my most recent episode, the topics were very controversial. I tried to tiptoe in an at least somewhat responsible manner, while still offering my candid opinion. Even if you disapprove, I hope we can still remain friendly. And the Mad Human History replies, No, I thought you were fair and objective, but that stopping being so would make you more popular, sort of what Free Thought Blogs does. And once again, I typed, haha. I said, that's a relief. I consider you a friend, and I thought I might have fallen out of favor. Big smiley face, Emoticon. And I hope he doesn't mind me reading this, but it's kind of funny, he said. But now I think you know why I have so few friends, and why I communicate via a format that requires scripting, recording, and editing. That was pretty funny. Uh, Then I joked, Well, at least now, you know, if we ever do have a falling out for some reason, at least I'll be civil about it. Uh, (laughs) I think that's true. I mean, I I try to take the high ground and be uh, diplomatic and civil. So I like to think if for some reason I do ever have a disagreement with one of my, you know, online friends, that at least it won't turn into some ongoing flame war or something like that. It's funny, though. I totally misunderstood what the mad humanist was trying to say. There I was metaphorically crawling on my belly, clutching at the knife in my back while trying to tweet a civil response. And it turns out it was all for naught. The Mad Humanist and I were simpatico all along. And I don't know if my reading comprehension uh, skills are are waning or something, but I had a similar misunderstanding with a member of the band. After the fact, uh, I emailed the YouTube link to last week's episode to the guys in the band because I kind of thought they'd get a kick out of seeing the visuals I put to the intro and outro music. And I had said at the beginning of the episode how, you know, those were my lyrics and my demented singing or whatever. And I saw a a Facebook notification that said, in quotes it looked like, are those your lyrics? And it was from one of the guitarists in the band. And I was thinking, oh no. Uh, I thought he was being like, are you claiming those are your lyrics? As if um, I shouldn't be claiming sole ownership or something of some part of the song. That should be all of ours. And once again, I was like, oh no, <laughs> what did I do? Um, but it turns out the guitarist was actually referring to another post where I had uh, PM'd the guys in the band the lyrics to one of my favorite ministry songs, but I didn't put the title. So... He thought that uh, good old Al Jorgensen's lyrics might have been mine, I guess. But that reminds me of something. Like, I I remember I used to get the feeling that some of the guys in the band when we were, like, younger would take offense when I would refer to it as my band, like I was being arrogant or I was being the front man, like uh, my band. But that was actually never how I ever meant it. I always meant it like the way you'd say my family. You're not saying I own it. You're saying this group this kind of familial unit that I'm a part of. You're saying my in that way. Just like I'd be fine if anyone else in the band, one of the guitarists, the bassists, or whatever, if they if they referred to it as my band. So I thought it might have been something like that. Like they were mad that I said uh, my band or uh, my lyrics or something like that. But, uh, but the lyrics are mine. I was always the word man in the group. In fact, and I don't know if the other guys ever resented this, but I could be kind of not territorial, because that has like this kind of negative or aggressive connotation. But I used to be kind of possessive of my role as the kind of you know the word man. There was a member of the band that we had to kind of falling out with a few times, and sometimes he'd come to me with uh, lyrics that he wanted to add to one of the songs or something like that, and I'd try to like politely and diplomatically as i could try to say no man i don't want to mess with my lyrics you know but uh, why am i going on about this stuff but it's funny though you know one of my personal heroes uh jim morrison the singer for the doors a lot of people don't know that he was uh, one of the few singers i would actually call a true poet even though um technically you know all song lyrics be considered poetry in the sense that verse is poetry but true poetry real poetry um seeing that come from a popular singer from like a rock singer a pop star i think that's pretty rare jim morrison's song lyrics were real poetry to me but on top of that he was actually a poet who wrote books of poetry i think one of them uh in american prayer i believe he uh published while he was still alive, probably, maybe shortly before his death, before he went to Paris. And posthumously, there was uh, Wilderness, and uh, is it, um, I, I want to say, it, yeah, Wilderness, The lo- the Lords and the New Creatures. I'm trying to think if that was released while he was still alive or after he died, I can't remember. But w- Wilderness, The Lords and the New Creatures, uh, there's a the Lords of the New Creatures is mostly, um, I think it's stuff, poetry he wrote while he was still in film school or something like that. I think The American Night was one that was published uh, after his death, but American Prayer, I think, was published while he was alive. And uh, there's a great album called An American Prayer where the surviving Doors took studio recordings of Jim Morrison reading his poetry. I was about to say something very stupid. I was about to say that he made before he died. It's, yeah, like he was in the studio recording poetry after he died. That would definitely be good evidence for an afterlife. But uh, but they took those recordings and they put them to music. And if you're a Doris fan, that's a great album in American Prayer. But it's funny, Jim Morrison was such a great lyricist and poet that You'd probably automatically think that he wrote all the Doors' lyrics, but it's kind of funny. Some of the biggest hits that the Doors produced or whatever, the lyrics were actually written by the guitarist Robbie Krieger. I think Light My Fire, most of the lyrics were written by Krieger. Love Her Madly, Krieger. I think um, Love Me Two Times, I think uh, mostly Krieger. But some of my favorite Doors songs are some of the more obscure ones, like Not to Touch the Earth. Or even though The End's not obscure, everyone who even has passing knowledge of The Doors is probably aware of The End. That dark, epic song that was used in Apocalypse Now. The End, I think that's pure poetry, and that's uh, that's all Morrison. Most of the songs were written by Morrison, but some of the, the band's biggest hits were written by Robbie Krieger. The lyrics, anyway. Oh, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to talk about. Speaking of that Newsbite episode about the three million-year-old tools. Yeah, so anyway, and I'm speaking from memory here. So there's a series of dig sites. There's three dig sites, which as a whole are referred to as uh, the Lom Kui region uh, by archaeologists or paleontologists or whoever's, whoever the hell's digging there. But it's known as Lom and it's a collection of three different sites and that's in northern um, Kenya, near the, I believe, the Lake Turkana region. But yeah, 3 uh, million, actually technically 3.3 million year old tools. And uh, since modern humans don't really come on the scene till about 200,000 years ago, obviously we're dealing with some kind of other hominid here. And I may have made a mistake in the episode, I think only the one mistake, I call it an episode, but it's a news bite. You know, it was like three minutes long. I said that since modern humans obviously weren't around 3.3 million years ago, it had to be like an earlier hominid ancestor. And that actually could be true. But, you know, evolution is a branching tree, not a linear line. So there is a chance that it could have been a hominid that was related to us, you know, some kind of branch off of uh, our family tree but not a direct ancestor. And the I was going to say the main suspect but one of, one hominid that's thought to possibly be the person who built the, not the one person but the species that built those tools is called um, I believe it's Kenyanthropus platyops and uh, that's supposedly uh, could be the hominid species that uh, developed those, those tools. And I guess, if I understand this correctly, modern science doesn't know yet for sure if Kenyanthropus is a direct ancestor or one of those other related hominid species, a kind of branch off the tree, but uh, not uh, a direct ancestor. And there's a funny story involving that. So the day that story broke, I'm like, this would be perfect for one of those News bite segments. So I'm going to rush around and turn it into one of those and try to get it right out. So I used a few different sources, I think Heretz, and uh, I forget uh, the the other two. Uh, I think one British newspaper, one American one. And I just tried to distill the facts from those few sources and, and try to... Regurgitate everything in my own words—that kind of paint an ugly picture. But one source actually misspelled *Kenyanthropus platyops* as *Kenyanthropus platitops*, and uh, so I recorded the whole thing. Was getting ready to upload it to YouTube, and all of a sudden I realized the mistake. So I had to reopen Garage Band, re-record the, uh, myself saying the name of that hominid species uh, twice and try to slide it into the recording in a way where it wouldn't uh, stick out like a sore thumb. But for some reason the name uh, Platyops or even the, the, the misspelling platy-tops, it makes me think of like a humanoid platypus. <laughs> but anyway, I think that's it. I'm looking at uh, my monitor right now and it's telling me that I've been sitting here for an hour and 23 minutes. After I edit this, who knows, the final product might be like an hour. I don't know how much I'm gonna gut, but I'm tired. This is uh, Monday night, the end of Memorial Day weekend. I partied pretty hard for the first time in a while uh this past saturday and i gotta work tomorrow so i'm gonna call it a wrap you guys know the drill uh please like the show on facebook i'm still trying to get those numbers up a bit uh follow the show on twitter if you would Uh, please check out the YouTube channel. That would be uh, much appreciated. You can also listen to the show on Stitcher, review or subscribe through iTunes. Check out the archives at Podbean. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. If you want to help the show monetarily, there's a PayPal widget at the bottom of the Podbean page. There's all that alliteration again. And uh, you can donate as little as 99 cents. I think you can also buy the Brief History of St. Patrick audio documentary. It's also down by that widget, and that's uh, 99 cents. You can also uh, become a Patreon supporter and uh, donate monthly as little as $1. And currently, if you become a Patreon member, you get a... You get a... hear those little chihuahua footsteps Uh, my dog just busted into the room but anyway you get a free version of the um history of saint patrick documentary here and there during the history of the show i've done little audio documentaries say on like the history of a, a certain holiday or something like that and i took the saint patrick's day one and kind of turned it and Um, into this little spoken word documentary and created some original artwork for it. You can find a similar version of it for free if you go through the podcast archives, but uh, you can get the version that's a little more polished and has the artwork uh, for free if you become a Patreon uh, member. And I'm still working on, I'm going to take an H.P. Lovecraft story, a a short one. (laughs) And turn that into like an audiobook. I'm gonna release that on Patreon for uh, subscribers, uh, Patreon subscribers. Alright, I think that's it. So until next week, thanks.